Westmount, I ask you to turn in your Bibles to Exodus 11. Exodus 11 is where we are in our study of Exodus. Exodus 11. And I want to begin this morning as you're turning there just by a reading of this passage. We come up for air, if you will, a little bit, and we're anchored just on this chapter, this short chapter. But it has much for our attention this morning, so I just want to give it a reading to start, to lay the land, so to speak, before we dive into it. So Exodus 11, look with me, starting in verse 1. The Lord said to Moses, yet one plague more I will bring upon Pharaoh and upon Egypt. Afterward, he will let you go from here. When he lets you go, he will drive you away completely. Speak now in the hearing of the people that they ask every man of his neighbor and every woman of her neighbor for silver and gold jewelry. The Lord gave the people favor in the sight of the Egyptians. Moreover, the man Moses was very great in the land of Egypt, in the sight of Pharaoh's servants, and in the sight of the people. So Moses said, thus says the Lord, about midnight, I will go out in the midst of Egypt. And every firstborn in the land of Egypt shall die. From the firstborn of Pharaoh who sits on the throne, even to the firstborn of the slave girl who is behind the handmill, and all the firstborn of the cattle, there shall be a great cry throughout all the land of Egypt, such as there has never been nor ever will be again. But not a dog shall growl against any of the people of Israel, either man or beast, that you may know that the Lord makes a distinction between Egypt and Israel. And all these your servants shall come down to me and bow down to me, saying, Get out, you and all the people who follow you. And after that, I will go out. And he went out from Pharaoh in hot anger. And the Lord said to Moses, Pharaoh will not listen to you, that my wonders may be multiplied in the land of Egypt. Moses and Aaron did all these wonders before Pharaoh, and the Lord hardened Pharaoh's heart, and he did not let the people of Israel go out of his land. Look again at verse 10. And again, by way of introduction, this is an apt summary to all that we've seen thus far. Moses and Aaron did all these wonders. Nine wonders, in fact. Nine plagues from blood in the Nile to darkness. Each increasing in intensity, remember, to get attention. And as the wonders increase, so too the distinction. You see it there mentioned again in that verse. Egypt versus Israel. That's the distinction. So clear. And not only the distinction, did you see to the purpose, repeated again, we've seen it in so many ways, all God's mighty signs and wonders that we've seen unleashed, so that by these, these plagues, these wonders, Pharaoh, Egypt, noted the whole world would know, would know Yahweh. In verse 10, we're also reminded that the Lord hardened Pharaoh's heart. Do you see that there too, in summary? Of course, this is what the Lord said he would do from the very beginning. We consider, of course, from the call of Moses, right? Do you remember in chapter 4? What did he say to him in verse 21? This is 
isn't the call. He hasn't even arrived in Pharaoh's court yet. 421, but I will harden his heart, Pharaoh's heart, so that he will not let the people go. God, of course, reminded the brothers again of this before the first plague. Do you remember chapter 7, verse 3? What did he say? But I will harden Pharaoh's heart. And though I multiply my signs and wonders in the land of Egypt, Pharaoh will not listen to you. This has been repeated over and over again. And as we've seen, so God said, so it came to be. After the boils, after the locusts, after the darkness, God hardened his heart. Yet, saying that, we also remember, we need to remember that God is not the only one hardening Pharaoh's heart. That hardening was also done by Pharaoh as well. The text is clear about this. After the frogs, after the flies, we're told explicitly, Pharaoh hardened his heart. We would ask, well, how hardened was Pharaoh's heart? Well, after nine simply devastating plagues, where all the Egyptian livestock and crops are just absolutely wiped out, here, after all that, we see the familiar refrain once more. Again, verse 10, Pharaoh did not let the people of Israel go out of the land. Church, so we would say as we come to chapter 11, nothing has changed by way of Pharaoh's heart, right? In fact, we could say even grammatically by that very word, it's been strengthened in its hardening. Nothing has changed by way of Pharaoh wanting to relent. Not even a hint. After sign, after wonder, after judgment upon judgment, after magicians exposed, after his own people ravaged, after nine clear humiliations, Pharaoh is in exactly the same place. It's just amazing. And so this next chapter, 11, is, as I mentioned off the top, like a pause in the narrative flow. We come up for air here, and the air is tense. Because you know, even as you read, not just because of what you know from your reading of God's word. Even the first-time reader would know something is about to happen. Pharaoh, you have tested the Almighty time and time again. Something is going to happen. We will observe Pharaoh presented, and here it is. This is the weight of this 11th chapter. With a final opportunity. A final opportunity to repent and turn. It is incredible in one sense, after all the hard-heartedness, the lies, and the cheating. I want us to grab that mercy that we sang about this morning. It is simply astonishing that God continues to bear with Pharaoh. Is that not true? It's amazing that he does that. Indeed, he is of great mercy. And that's what we want to comment on, because we talk about the justice that is about to be unleashed in Egypt and on Pharaoh's home. But we need to comment on the mercy and not miss the mercy that is more. Yes, we're reminded of that perfect attribute of God. You know it. You've experienced it, have you not? His patient long-suffering. Oh, beloved, is it not true how he bears with us? He just bears with us. His long-suffering. Now, speaking of God's perfect attributes, his perfections, and his divine character, church, we will re be reminded of just that right here in chapter 11. We're reminded in this chapter as we come up to breathe, we'll be reminded of who our God is and mark it God alone. 
as Yahweh warns Pharaoh again, mark it, one last time. Let us, beloved, please not miss what Pharaoh misses. Let us not miss what Pharaoh misses. Westman, I want to be pointed and I want to be very direct this morning with a chapter like this. This chapter demands your attention right now. This chapter demands, this is not a, a historical narrative in one sense it is. It's not just that. It's not just uh, you know, Bible reading or I kind of learn about Pharaoh. No, this living word of God, what's about to be said in this chapter, demands your attention this morning. This is not chapter 11 that is a holdover to chapter 12. This is not just, let me just get prepared for that Passover in chapter 12. This is just not clean up details in chapter 11. These are not 10 buffer verses. This chapter is a warning, and more precisely, it is a final warning. It's a final warning. What is recorded in these verses is Pharaoh's very last chance to repent and turn. For this Egyptian king, this earthly ruler, what lies immediately ahead is only death. That's it. No more plagues and bearing with. Death of his firstborn son, that's around the corner for Pharaoh. Death of his subjects, death of his rule, and death, of course, for this Egyptian king himself. What lies ahead for this hard-hearted soul, even more is not only the temporal death to be washed away in a flood, and we know that well, to be washed away in the Red Sea. That's not all that lies ahead for Pharaoh, but what lies ahead is the eternal washing away in the lake of fire for Pharaoh. That's what lies ahead. I am reminded pointedly of Romans 9.22, which is a chapter in the New Testament, by the way, where Pharaoh is in view. Give it a hearing, Romans 9.22. What if God, desiring to show his wrath and to make known his power, has endured with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction? Wow. Destruction. Pharaoh's end as God foretold and purposed. And, mark it, Pharaoh's end as Pharaoh himself chose through his own hard-heartedness. Christian, I know as you consider fair, you think, yeah, that's him. Christian, as we come to the climax of this account, this chapter presents you with this question this morning. Christian, are you on warning this morning? Are you on warning this morning? Christian, is your heart hardened? Christian, is your heart hardened to the revelation of God in Yahweh? For you that profess to follow Jesus and love Jesus, I ask you first, yes, application out front, has your heart become hard today? Has life not gone the way you've wanted these past 12 months? And are you becoming bitter? Is your focus more on what you've lost this year than what you've gained in Christ forever? Listen to me, we know for certain David's heart was hardened for at least nine months. Does that time frame ring a bell? We know that for certain, that his heart was hardened, his bones were wasting away. That is a man after God's own heart in that moment with a hardened heart. Is that you? 
For you that profess to follow Christ, this final warning here, let us not flip the page quickly and want to get to Exodus 12 and learn about Passover details. Let us this morning be asked the question, is your heart hard? Is your heart hard? And not just you, Christian, what of you, friend? What of you? Maybe today, maybe you've been tracking with us over these past few weeks, you relate to Pharaoh's declaration. Maybe world events have got your attention. You'll say, I will check out spirituality. I will check out this God. Maybe you would say, well, yes, who is this Lord that I should obey his voice? Who is he? Who is he that these people seem to be interested in? I do not know the Lord. Maybe you've said that. I do not know the Lord. Is that you? Is that you? And in that revelation in this time in 2021, revealing the hardened heart to this point. Is that you? 2020, like these plagues for Pharaoh, has exposed what you don't know. And it's exposed what you don't have. Beloved, can I say this respectfully? Whoever you are, wherever you are, I don't know what your state is, but I know this. The past 12 months have brought you to your knees. You have been revealed for the powerlessness in the soul that you have. You have no power to control your circumstances. You are at the mercy of something else, and you know it. You know it. Like Pharaoh, maybe your gods have let you down. And there is nowhere to turn. Like Pharaoh, you, you might be receiving a final warning here. And you say, oh, here we go. What are you talking about? I'm fine. I might be just hobbled up for a bit, but I'm, I'm fine. I'll be okay. Oh, yes. That is the cry of those hard-hearted. You know, I was thinking this week, I was reminded of it this weekend. We are not guaranteed tomorrow. Someone said to me, wow, there's been a lot of death over the past few months. And I'm not talking about COVID cases. I want to be clear about that. We here at Westmount have seen it. We, we know death. Death has come to our shores. In just the past two months, maybe three, I know a 50-year-old and I know an 80-year-old or so that within one week of diagnosis, they died. A 50-year-old and an 80-year-old. Listen to me. I know a 20-year-old and I know a 70-year-old laughing, playing, sport, one second and the very next dead. You are not guaranteed tomorrow. You're not. In fact, if I could press it, this may be it for you. You don't know. You just don't know. And I ask you, and I ask you, is your heart hardened? Do you really and truly know the Lord? Do you? Are you ready to meet him? Whatever your state in this chapter, this may be your final warning. Let us all heed it. Let us all behold God and God alone. He is our only hope in the mercy that he offers through his son. So let's behold him first. Look with me, verse 1. The divine knowledge of the Almighty. The divine knowledge. You know, as we consider God alone this morning, I don't know about you or what you may be willing to admit, 
But we have all today come to realize the futility and the limits of human knowledge. Is that not true? I want you to just think for a moment what you're reading, what you're being told every day. I almost want to chuckle in exasperation to say it is just stunning to me what people don't know and what they're being exposed for what they absolutely don't know. Regular, here's one, revised modeling. Here's the new modeling. Here's regular modeling. This is what's going to happen, and then it never does. We have no clue about the future. We, we, we like to say that we do, right? We like to say that. Everyone has a little prognostication in them. Uh, let me tell you what's going to happen, and then God just pulls the rug out from under you. That's the, that's the future. What about the present? I was thinking this week, did you see it? The blank front pages of newspapers? Yeah. That's a protest to say we can't give you current news, right? I mean, there's a whole other thing there with the, you know, the market dominion and all of these things. But basically what that's saying is you can't even trust present news because someone's got a corner on that. So you get a blank page. I just thought, how fitting is that? That's knowledge. Turn to the newspaper for knowledge and what do you get? A blank page. And what about as history continues to be canceled? Do you know this one? They're just canceling history. In fact, I heard some of the people, the statues they're tearing down in the States, are just more and more like there's just no end in sight. I don't know if it's true, but some of the Washington, Lincoln, they're just all coming down. We're just going to cancel history left, right, and center. And we wonder about knowledge of the past. Revisionist history is not just something that was growing in a corner. I mean, it's just everywhere. Oh, that's not the way that it was. Let me tell you. No. We don't know the past. We don't know the future. We don't know the present. We don't know the past. We don't. But who does? Look at verse 1. Who just declares all these things? Look at verse 1. The Lord said to Moses, that's authoritative, yet one plague more I will bring upon Pharaoh and upon Egypt. Afterward, he will let you go from here. When he lets you go, he will drive you away completely. That speaks for itself, doesn't it? God spoke. God spoke. God says, I will bring one more plague. I will, and of course he will, and he does. God says, afterward, Pharaoh will let you go, and of course he will, and he does. God says, when he lets you go, he will drive you away completely. Now think about what's staggering there. Anyone reading this account, these nine plagues would say, okay, maybe in desperation he may let you go, but look at all the kind of arm's length that he wanted to let you go. Look what the text says. He will let you go completely. There's no way a prognosticator would say, yes, Maybe Israel will go, but not completely. I mean, that guy is going to have a provision on that. No. God says, you will go completely. And of course, the next chapter, the very next chapter, gives the account of all of this fulfilled. Chapter 12, verses 31 and 32. Make that clear, like a big underline. And this is not the only place where the divine knowledge of God is revealed. And this is where we pause in our pause to consider the omniscience, the all-knowing character and attribute of our God. Psalm 139. <clears throat> o Lord, you have searched me and known me. You know when I sit down and when I rise up. You discern my thoughts from afar. You search out my path and my lying down and are acquainted with all my ways. Even before a word is on my tongue, behold, O Lord, you know it all together. You hem me in behind and before you lay your hand upon me. Such knowledge is too wonderful for me. It is high. I cannot attain it. David knew this knowledge. 
The Apostle Paul knew this knowledge too. Romans 11, verse 33. Oh, the depths of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God. Hear this. How unsearchable are his judgments. How inscrutable his ways. For who has known the mind of the Lord or who has been his counselor or who has given a gift to him that he might be repaid? For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be glory, to him be glory forever. Amen. This is divine knowledge. This is true knowledge, beloved. This is what we're talking about when we say so-and-so or whoever, insert whatever, knows. There's only one that knows. Almighty God. That's divine knowledge. This is his omniscience, his all-knowing nature of all things. And the residence of knowledge, can I say this? The residence of true knowledge resides in the Almighty alone. That's it. That's it. Only God knows and God alone. And thus, thus, will you place your faith in trust? Will you place your tomorrow in human failing knowledge? I want you to just think about the futility of that. Will you do that? Are you going to place your faith in trust with a house of cards that just keeps coming down again and again? How many times do we need to be proven that human knowledge fails. Will you place your faith and trust in human knowledge? Or will you trust in the unfailing, almighty, all-knowing knowledge of God? Only he knows. That's one. Second attribute we see here. Gracious favor. Gracious favor. Verses 2 and 3. It was last spring. Do you remember this? Maybe it might feel like an eon ago for some. It doesn't for me. When toilet paper hoarding was at its highest. Do you remember that? And that you had those shots of the shopping carts and people kind of juggling them like that, right? There was need. You went, remember, you'd go to the grocery store. I just need to pick some of this, you know, everyday stuff up. And it's not there. And you got the sign on there. Just take one or whatever. Nobody did that. Well, I remember we were just one. We were like, you know, we're out. We can't find it anywhere. And I remember the day. This will sound pretty Funny, but I mean, it was a big deal at the time where we got two deliveries from two of you. And yeah, you guys are in need and we gave and it was just a thing, right? Because that was a thing no one could get. And, but here's the thing. That's just the way with the body of Christ. And it struck us. That's just the way. All of a sudden we get this delivery. His grace through his body, the favor, the favor Someone could say, well, that's just undeserved, Belgrave, because you didn't get with the program. You, you didn't do what you need to do and, you know, and, and stock up. Someone could say that. But his grace, his favor through his body, while the world clings tight, here's your image, the world clinging tight, the Lord gives away. The Lord gives away. And where you least expect... Like here, I mean, might you say it would be one thing for Egypt to let them go? Here it is again. You might say this. It's one thing for Egypt to let them go, exasperated. And quite another thing for Egypt, maybe, not to give the practical, like toilet paper, whatever it would be, right? It would be one thing for those necessities to be given away. But look at the text. Look at verse 2. This is what is despoiled of the Egyptians. This is incredible. Silver and gold. 
I don't need to even explain how precious those things are. Summed up in verse 3, the Lord gave the people favor in the sight of the Egyptians. Do you see that? The Lord gave the people favor in the sight of the Egyptians. That is, just look at that. That's a picture of grace, church. The Lord granting what is not deserved. I mean, need we be reminded just a few chapters ago in chapter 5. These Egyptians were what? Grumbling and discontent with God. How much were they grumbling? They sent their foreman to Pharaoh. Do you remember? Epic grumbling by the foreman. And of course, at the end of that chapter, by Moses himself. What have you done, God? You have not let your people go at all. At heart toward God. Yet, with all of that grumbling, all of that that would be truly deserved of that attitude toward the Almighty. Look at the word declared here. And by the way, in these three verses, this little brief aside, it's almost as if Moses, the earthly author of this account, just steps aside for a moment to give us this little aside account in these opening three verses. Look at what he says in verse 2. You tell my people, Moses. Moses recounts what the Lord has said to him. Moses, you tell my people, as they are released, they will receive favor. Church, we would say deliverance is enough, right? Deliverance is enough. I have this image of my mind of the guy being released from prison, right? And all the clemency that is given before a new president comes in. And you just can't imagine them saying, whoa, 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 I got a laundry list of things I need before I go. They just are like, I'm free. I'm free, right? In fact, if I could push it even more, it doesn't matter. If I don't take anything. I'll run naked out of this jail because I'm free. I am free. And that's all that matters in this moment. I no longer live behind bars. I'm free. That would be enough, right? Yet, think, beloved, what kind of God is this? What kind of God? Forget clothes and toilet paper. He says, take silver, take gold with your deliverance. What kind of God is this? Favor with deliverance. Christian, this Yahweh remains your God today. Can you grab that? This Yahweh of favor remains your God today. Giving grace upon grace, always giving more grace with our deliverance. I think sometimes if we would pause, and I think we all need to do this in these times, it would bring us to our knees. The staggering overflow of grace that he has poured into our lives. I think, I know for me, and listen, I fail at this often. It is the antidote for grumbling. It's just there's a Niagara Falls of grace, Jason, in your life. Like, can you not just see that? And it's true for all of us. A new day, a next breath, a smile, a laugh, all of it undeserved. Have you ever had that moment? We love laughing in our home, and there's just sometimes I just think to myself, the four of us are just kind of laughing. Someone's done something. I think this is heavenly. Ever have that belly laugh? Some of us in our home, Belgers or not, we just don't breathe when we're laughing. And, but it's just a beautiful thing. It's like this, this is good. And compared to hell, this is grace. This is grace. David knew this grace. Psalm 23, 5. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You anoint my head with oil, my cup overflows. It's like the hand up on the battlefield. Whoa, whoa, whoa. 
hold those spears, javelins. I got a table to set out for my anointed. And I got a cup, by the way, she's going to overflow. She's going to run all over the place with goodness for my servant. Paul testified of this in his life. 1 Timothy 1.14, listen to this. The grace of our Lord overflowed for me with the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. The abundant fruit of grace. This is a man that knew I was killing Christians, and now I'm calling people to Christ. And that's grace. That's grace. Same in Romans 5.20, where sin increased, grace what? Abounded all the more. This is gracious favor. Do you see it in the text? Silver and gold. Silver and gold. This is the grace of God and God alone. This text asks you, will you keep turning? Will you keep turning to an empty world for favor? I think that's the picture today. People turning to an empty world for handouts and, and favor. Looking for help from a closed fist. Or will you receive the unmerited, abundant grace that God freely gives to those that come to him? Will you? That's two. Let's look more at our God. Three, exact justice. Exact justice. The attribute of God, not mentioned as much as it should be that our God is a just God. In fact, he's perfect. In fact, he is exact in his justice. This world since the fall, has been filled with injustice. Is that not true? We live in a very unjust world. It seems like a, an understatement today. Evil people rise. Evil people gain. Evil people prosper. Bad plans come to fruition, and bad people make out like bandits. You know what I'm talking about? It's just unjust. Yet, all the while, good people hurt. Good people suffer loss. Good people are oppressed. In fact, I would submit to you, I believe living with COVID in this world is just like living with injustice. What do I mean by that? Living with COVID is living with injustice. This is what I mean. You will never stop it in this life. You're not going to stop it. Try, but you won't. You'll never stop it. As long as you live, there's COVID, and as long as you live, there's injustice. Also, you must learn to live with it then. Although no one wants to live with it, but the reality is we need to live with it. When you think about fully functioning people, they recognize I've got to live with a number of things that are not good and not pleasant and harmful. And the well-adjusted people say, okay, I've just got to get on living. Like injustice. Could you imagine if you made holding up justice, the thing for you to, to move from day to day, you would never leave your closet. Well, I want the optimal circumstance. I want justice to prevail. It's just not going to happen. In this life, in this life, it'll never happen. In fact, that and COVID and all else evil will only be eradicated and made right after we die. Did you know that? That's when it comes. We don't seek it necessarily in this life. God grants it, his grace and mercy, but ultimately, fully, completely, consummately, it will happen after this life. Yes, true justice awaits, and there it is. Let that quench your thirst. True justice is coming. All, all will be made right. Not just with each other. We're not just talking about harmonious, pleasant relationships. All will be made right with their creator. Do you see that? 
with God. He will reconcile all people, all creation to himself. And that is very important because right now, right now, all creation is not reconciled to God. I think you know that and we've talked about this before. All humanity since Adam and Eve come into this world condemned. All humanity, every soul comes in under sin. Of course, as they grow and live and develop, they become sinners, not just by nature, but also by choice. But here it is, and this is so tremendously unpopular, but it is biblically true. What unites us all together, what is truly common in humanity, is not good, but sin. If there is one thing that unites us together, that we could hold our hands and say, we enjoy this together, well, not enjoy... We have this truly together, and every soul have this. It's not a little good in everyone, but it's a lot of sin in your heart. That's what joins humanity together. We are all equal, common, together. We are in sin together. That is not popular, I know, but listen, it is true. The Bible doesn't just say in a verse or a chapter... Listen to me. It screams out of every page, we are default sinners. And do you see the problem? When you deny that transcendent truth, it could get yourself into trouble, right? When you deny that reality that we're sinners by nature, we're default sinners. I've said it how many times, Westmount? Little children, you don't need to teach evil. They just do it because why? They're sinners by nature. That's their default. They have a default setting at birth, sin. And thus, here it is, that default setting warrants hell and punishment and death. I know it doesn't sound good, but it doesn't mean it's not true. Romans 6.23, the wages of sin is death. Friends, listen to me. This life is not a right. You're not entitled to your next breath. And I want to be the one, if I'm the only one to tell you that, you're not entitled to this life. You're not. It's just so far off. And I want to say this morning, I won't get it out properly, that this is the source of our problems when we think we're entitled to things and we think we're owed the next day. That's the source of so many problems. We are owed nothing. In fact, let me, let me tell you this. Let me tell you what we are entitled to. It's not this. It's judgment. That's what we're entitled to. If we want to claim any right today, if we want to stand up and say, hey, 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 I deserve this, let's put up a placard and a card that says, hey, I deserve judgment. I actually deserve smiting. Give me what I'm due. Of course, no one would do that. When we approach God and his word that way, the opposite of that, when we, when we insert everything else as a right, think with me. When we hold up everything else, I have the right to do this. I'm entitled to do that. I have the right to do this. And by the way, everyone is just good. When you hold that up to God, we are apt to reject that God. Listen, God is holy. What have we learned in Exodus? God is blameless, without stain, without sin. God is perfect. We are not. We sin without measure. Is that not true? 
Men, oh men, we sin without measure in thought, in word, and in deed. We're sin machines. And what we need reminding of today is when we raise our fists demanding justice is that we would not want true justice to be exacted on us. We don't want that. Beloved, you know you don't really want that. In light of what the Old Testament teaches about a holy God, listen to me, anything but judgment is a mercy. You see that? Anything you receive in this life that's not judgment, it's a mercy from God. In fact, that here it is, any human being has any breath to live any day at all is all a mercy. Did you know that? The fact that you have any day that you arrived here, that you're breathing right now, it's all a mercy. It's all undeserved. In fact, we would say the fact that any human being is not immediately smited and judged upon birth is an injustice. You say, okay, well, now you're pushing it. This is what the word of God would suggest throughout. Better question is, this is the question, how is such a default sinful humanity allowed to tarry for so long? How does a holy God bear with such sinfulness? Exact justice, on the other hand, is God's inalienable right to call in at any time. He chooses when because he is God and we are not. He is God and God alone. We are not. Let us say this another way, beloved, to make sure we grab this. The fact that God does not immediately against all does not mean that he does not have the intrinsic right to do so. The fact that he does not immediately call into judgment all the time, right? The fact that we experience common mercy doesn't mean he doesn't have the right to call in judgment anytime. Does that make sense? And this is the illusion often that we are under. You know, I also would say to you, this is kind of the low-grade fever of common grace and common mercy, not that there's anything bad from it, that we think we're entitled to all these things. Now... Why do we need that reminder and that word? Because of what's coming next. Because you're going to see judgment that has been difficult for all people of all time to, to swallow. Look at verse 4. So Moses said, thus says the Lord, about midnight I will go out in the midst of Egypt and every firstborn in the land of Egypt shall die. From the firstborn of Pharaoh who sits on his throne, even to the firstborn of the slave girl who is behind the handmill, and all the firstborn of the cattle, there shall be a great cry. Throughout all the land of Egypt, such as there has never been, nor ever will be again. That is hard for anyone. And, and do you notice two things? How sweeping is the judgment? The great cry. You know, that tethers us back to the great cry from Israel to our, their God, chapters 1 and 2. And here we have Egypt wailing the cry of death. But secondly, to notice the sweeping nature of death. Nobody is spared. Nobody is spared in Egypt, in Egypt. Incredible. God warns, and here it is, that in this final plague, the injustice will end. Can you see that? God says, in this final plague, I've been tarrying, but now I lift my hand of restraint and the injustice ends. Egypt, you get what you deserve. Yes, the common mercy you've enjoyed, Pharaoh, that I've bared with, it will end. And here it is, it's not because you were not warned, after nine mercies, nine offers, nine powerful demonstrations of who God is, and after nine obstinate refusals by Pharaoh of who God is, now comes justice. 
justice exacted, look at it, on the firstborn of Egypt. And that is something. This is exact justice. What do we mean by that? Remember what Yahweh said back in 422. What did he say? Israel is my firstborn. You withhold my firstborn from me. And what did he say? Verse 23, Pharaoh, I will kill your firstborn son. Again, God foretells this exact justice. Do you see that? My firstborn for your firstborn. And that's true justice, right? Ultimately, that is true justice. Pharaoh gets what he deserves, and also because he did not turn. He had an opportunity to turn in his life and repent, to turn and know God, yet what? This account has shown us, instead, Pharaoh chose, and we can say it this way, instead, Pharaoh chose justice. Might have been fully aware of what he was saying in that moment. He's like, yes, bring it in my hard-heartedness. Certainly, that's what God is doing here. I'm giving you exact justice. Mercifully, not all of humanity in this moment receives what they deserve. In fact, we are here this morning by the mercies of God. You will live whatever else you have for your days by the mercies of God. And that brings us to the next attribute here. And it, it always goes hand in hand with justice, exact justice, but distinct mercy, distinct mercy. Look at verse 7. But not a dog shall growl against any of the people of Israel, neither man nor beast, that you may know that the Lord makes a distinction between Egypt and Israel. Look at that picture. Not a dog shall bite, bark, or even growl. By the word, you look at that word growl there, by the way, that growl word. You could say it this way in the original language, sharpen its tongue. Say the dog is all bark, no bite. There's a sense there, right? It's threatening. So what the text is saying here, they won't even be threatened. They won't even get the dog bark, let alone the bite. The picture's clear, and we've covered this before. Judgment, justice is coming, but God's people will be spared. God's people will continue, not just in mercy, but here it is in our text. Not just in mercy, because all humanity has a common mercy, but when you think about the judgment and the wrath of God being poured out on a people, my people will receive a distinct mercy. You see that? This is not just the common mercy that every humanity has to be born, to live and breathe. This is the distinct mercy to be spared from the wrath of God. And that is, and I hope you lavish in it this morning, beloved, the distinct mercy that he pours out on his particular people. This is the sovereign hand predetermining, setting aside his people for favor. That's what this is. And what is the favor, the mercy here? And we need to really highlight this. It is life spared, life distinctly spared. It is God looking on a particular people, his people, and note that that's where he's looking, nowhere else in this text. Goshen, Israel, my people, he looks just on them. And then he thinks about the wrath of God being poured out on this kingdom. He says, not these. Do you see that? Here comes my judgment and wrath. But here's the divine bubble. Not these. Can you grab that? Not these. They're spared. They won't face my wrath. They won't face my judgment. 
not these. God is a God of exact justice. We've seen that. But God here, and Christian, you know this, if you're under this bubble, we are creatures of his divine mercy, a distinct mercy. We know, we know we deserve our firstborns to die. We know we deserve death, but God says not these. Particularly, distinctively, not these. Mercy offered over and over and over again to Pharaoh. Does God have any pleasure in the death of the wicked? I guess we need to say that. Does he have any pleasure in the death of the wicked? No, Ezekiel 33. But that they would turn to him and receive mercy and live. That's the heart of God. He wants to give mercy. Justice is necessary, but he gives mercy. And this is what God offers to those that turn from their sin. Think about all the things we could say about his son, Jesus Christ. Who is that bubble? Who is that refuge? Who is the one through his work and not our own? When we turn and accept Christ and his refuge, his work, we are safe from the wrath of God in him. Jerry will continue to walk us through in Ephesians. This is the beauty of the church. We have refuge not just in these times, not just COVID or pandemic, in all times. For when we die, refuge in him. God looks on Jesus Christ, and when he thinks about the wrath that's deserved of everyone, he says, not these. When you die and you stand before the judgment seat, he looks at Christ and he says, not him, not her. These will go, these goats will go, but not these. Incredible. We're safe. We're safe in Christ. The dog is not only kept at bay, he is muzzled. I just love that picture. He's muzzled. What we'll see in this next chapter is absolutely no harm upon God's people. And again, do we need reminding? Not only no harm, but hey, take some silver and gold with you. God's people are spared and they run off with Egyptian spoiled boot. What a picture. That is distinct mercy. This is the mercy of God and God alone. Friend, if you are breathing right now, if you're breathing, you are living in God's common mercy. If you're breathing. If you're breathing. But it is borrowed time. Today, you can turn and receive mercy for all time. Not just for your next breath on earth, where you don't know when it'll run out. If you turn and repent... You can receive mercy for eternity. Do, do you want that? Do you want mercy for eternity? Distinct mercy. Last, divine knowledge, gracious favor, exact justice, distinct mercy, and sovereign power. Verse 8. Let's finish this chapter. And all these your servants shall come down to me and bow down to me, saying, Get out, you and all the people who follow you. And after that I will go out. And he went out from Pharaoh in hot anger. Then the Lord said to Moses, Pharaoh will not listen to you, that my wonders may be multiplied in the land of Egypt. Moses and Aaron did all these wonders before Pharaoh, and the Lord hardened Pharaoh's heart, and he did not let the people of Israel go out of his land. In verse 8, look at that again. The details of the humiliation of Egypt and more so Pharaoh are complete. You see that in verse 8? This is the completion of it. It comes to a head. Instead of bowing to mighty Pharaoh, the servants will turn to a lowly shepherd. And 
again, is that not God? Pharaoh, you're humiliated. You're done. The lowly shepherd rises. That same lowly shepherd declares the end of verse 8. After that, picture the lowly shepherd to Pharaoh. After that, Egyptian king, I will go out. The fulfillment of God's sovereign plan. That has always been in the background. That's always been the undercurrent of this entire account. Remember, God not only told Pharaoh, Moses, and Aaron that this would be the case, but this was declared to Abraham. Do you remember we looked at this? This is what God told Abraham when he struck his covenant with him. Genesis 15. He said this would happen. I mean, God says and it comes to be. And we need to, to mention here, when we think about power and might, this is not the flashy, it will rain tomorrow or tomorrow I'm going to such and such a place or next week even. Whoa, look at this prognostication. No. This is, mark it, in 400 years, the ruler of the earth will be humiliated. What kind of power is that? In 400 years, the ruler of the earth will be absolutely humiliated. Genesis 15. What about Psalm 33, 9? For he spoke and it came to be. He commanded and it stood firm. Have we not seen that? That's what we've seen through this entire account. He spoke and it came to be. In fact, and we will see it ultimately coming to be. In the weeks ahead as we look at the Passover. We all know that there is no one on earth. Again, we, maybe we don't all admit this. But we all know that there's no one on earth that can speak and it comes to be. You know that. You know no one has that kind of power. In fact, I would submit to you as we set off the top, it's just the opposite today. It's incredible how trust, mark it, is this not true? Trust in every single authority on earth has been eroded over the past year. Who, who can you trust? You can't trust anyone. You don't, what's the big thing? I almost have to be reminded of our glorious God when you hear often, I don't know what to believe anymore. Do you hear that a lot? I don't know what to believe. You have a coworker, neighbor, I don't know what to believe. Christian, you do. You do. Sovereign power. The omnipotence, the all power of God and God alone. That's what you know. That's what you believe in. Moses and us, Christian, receive a reminder of that sovereign power. Look at verse 9. This is the reminder. Then the Lord said to Moses, Pharaoh will not listen to you. Continued fulfillment of prophecy. That my wonders may be multiplied in the land of Egypt. This is not just watch the snake thing again. Look at the wonders of these judgments and plagues. Incredible. The purpose alluded to again, you see, it's so that my wonders, God says, so that my wonders would be known everywhere. This reality, by the way, is referenced by Paul in Romans 9. Romans 9 in a passage outlining God's sovereign power in salvation. We've alluded to it over and over again, but I want us to just consider now the context with this final warning to Pharaoh. Let me read Romans 9, 14. So we understand who is truly in control and who wields the power here romans 9 14 just listen to this little snippet of this magnificent chapter what shall we say then is there injustice on god's part by the way referring to the fact that he chose jacob and not esau and any person would say well that's not fair before esau was even born before he did anything bad or good that's not fair 
Paul picks up that argument and says, are we going to say that God is unjust? Look at this, by no means. For he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. And listen to this. So then, it depends, and mark this, it depends not on human will or exertion, but on what? On God who has mercy. And you say, so we're at the mercy of God? Is that what you're saying? I can't do anything? Is that what you're saying? The world's falling apart and we're at the mercy of God? Is that what you're saying this morning? Yes. Absolutely. And praise God, we're at his mercy. He just says, turn to me. Know me. We're at his mercy. Verse 17. For the scripture says to Pharaoh, there's your contrast, for this very purpose, I have raised you up that I might show my power in you and that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. There it is. You've heard that before, right? So then, so then this glorious God, this gracious God, this just God, so then he has mercy on whomever he wills and he hardens whomever he wills. That's the word of God. That enduring characteristic there true in the New Testament is helpful because we read in verse 10, Moses and Aaron here, Exodus 11, Moses and Aaron did all these wonders before Pharaoh and the Lord hardened Pharaoh's heart. And he did not let the people of Israel go out of his land. You, that verse is just dripping with the power of God, is it not? Who, who is in control? This isn't even just the puppet strings, because that's not a good illustration. This is the one who just reigns supreme over the entire universe. This is part of my plan all along. I've raised you up for such a time as this. That's the last word, by the way, <clears throat> before the final plague preparations begin. Moses and Aaron execute the wonders and the judgments. Pharaoh's heart is hardened, and the result, he does not let the people of Israel go. And Westmount Market, if there was any doubt in the sovereign power of God over the heart, if, there, if you're here at the end of nine plagues before the tenth, if there's any doubt in it, here it is, you're confronted with this reality. If you're still doubting that God is in complete control of all things from heavens to the heart, it's right here. Verse 10 is your great summary of that. One of you came up to me this week and great student through Exodus reading, reading ahead and said, you know, it struck me. You think about salvation and I look at Pharaoh, it has to be God. There's no other explanation and I... You have one of those moments as elders, right? You're like, brother, you got it. It has to be God. There's no other explanation. We can hold up our wills and say, my will, my will, my will. But it has to be God. I just love that moment where it just clicked. Like, it has to be. God's hardening his heart. He hardens his heart. It has to be God. It, 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 indeed, it has to be God. And here it is. Here's your hope. I mean, if God were not sovereign over hardened hearts, your spouse, your children your friend, your neighbor, your coworker, if God was not sovereign over those souls, beloved market, there, was, there would be no hope. If God was not sovereign to take that same heart of stone, cold, and quicken it to respond to Yahweh, if he wasn't sovereign to do that, then listen, you all go out without any hope. But he is sovereign in power. In a moment... He can speak and it comes to be. In a moment, he can quicken the deadest heart. In a moment, he can turn depravity to devotion. In a moment. 
He can do that. By the way, that's why we pray. We do the only thing that we can do. We don't polish up our good works machine. We don't work on our clever rhetoric. We don't, you know, come up with these plans. No, we pray and we pray. And then when we're done praying, we pray some more. And then when we're finished that, we really start praying. He is beloved and he always has been sovereign in power. And we must end with this church because many, and I would submit to you so many, are like Pharaoh today, holding on to an illusion. It pains me to see so many people holding on to illusion. I spoke to an authority this week that told me, just the vaccine, we just get the vaccine out and we just get people, we're going to get back, and here it is, here it is, to normal. That's the hope. The vaccine is going to get us back to, and then, and then what? I wanted to say, and then what? Back to normal to just live out your days in this temporal existence right into judgment. We're holding on to an illusion that we have control, that we can do something. But the Bible over and over and over again says, you are powerless. It is me. And there's nothing more I can say to end than this, but this final warning. If again, you are struggling with the ultimate control of God in all things. I want to present to you as we close just a small sample of what you are up against as you hold on to your rifle and you shake your fist at God. As you cling to your rebellion, I just want you to know what almighty sovereign God in power has to say this morning. I want you to consider the sovereign power, and I'm just going to let these verses speak for themselves. They need nothing of me commenting on them. They just need to speak for themselves. And they're found throughout the revelation of God. Some of these you know. <clears throat> Genesis 50:20 As for you you meant evil against me but God meant it for good to bring it about that many people should be kept alive as they are today 1 Samuel 19:9 and 10 Then a harmful spirit from the Lord came upon Saul as he sat in his house with his spear in his hand 2 Samuel 12, verse 11. Thus says the Lord, behold, I will raise up evil against you in your own house. 2 Samuel 24, 1. And again, the anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel, and the Lord incited David against them, saying, go and take a census of Israel and Judah. 1 Kings 12, 15. So the king did not listen to the people, for, because, it was a turn of affairs brought about by the Lord. Job 14.5. Listen to these verses in Job. Man's days are determined and the number of his months is with you and God. You have appointed his limits that he cannot pass. Job 23.13. God is unchangeable. Who can turn him back? What he desires, that he does. For he will complete what he appoints. Job 42.2. I know that you can do all things, Job says, and no purpose of yours can be thwarted. Psalm 33, 11, <clears throat> The counsel of the Lord stands forever. The plans of his heart, that's Yahweh, to all generations. Psalm 135, 6, Whatever the Lord pleases, he does. In heaven and on earth, in the seas and all their depths. Hear Proverbs from just one chapter, Proverbs 16, 1. The plans of the heart belong to man, but the answer of the tongue is from the Lord. Proverbs 16, 4. The Lord has made everything for its purpose, even the wicked for the day of trouble. 
Proverbs 69, the heart of man plans his way, but the Lord establishes his steps. Proverbs 16.33, the lot is cast into the lap, but its every decision is from the Lord. Proverbs 19.21, many are the plans in the mind of a man, but it is the purpose of the Lord that will stand. Proverbs 20.24, a man's steps are from the Lord. How then can man understand his way? Isaiah 45.7, I form light and create darkness. I make well-being and create calamity. I am the Lord who does all these things. Isaiah 46, 9 to 11. Remember the former things of old, for I am God and there is no other. I am God and there is none like me, declaring the end from the beginning and from ancient times, things not yet done, saying, my counsel shall stand and I will accomplish all my purpose. What I have said, that I will bring about. What I have planned, that I will do. Amos 3, 6. Is a trumpet blown in a city? And the people are not afraid? Does disaster come to a city unless the Lord has done it? Daniel 4, 35. All the inhabitants of the earth are accounted as nothing. And he does according to his will among the host of heaven and among the inhabitants of the earth. No one, no one can hold back his hand. That's just the Old Testament. That's just a brief survey. Who's in control? Who is sovereign? This is your God. This is your God. Heed his final warning today. Wherever you're at, God-fearer or God-rejecter, heed his final warning. Do not harden your heart as Pharaoh, as we've seen, has done over and over again. Next time, we will now see the consequences of the hardened heart. Bow your heads with me. Father, as we consider the consequences that we're about to see, we are reminded once more of your mercy. We thank you that you're a merciful God that brings mercy and justice. Thank you, God, that a holy God, a perfect God, would look on an unholy people, save them, and lavish mercy. Thank you, God, for who you are. And God, may we be reminded as we leave this place of these great truths of you, God alone. Amen.